Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast version, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. You can also find information about my talk show appearances and any new book projects at MarlenePardo.com or go to Amazon and look at my author profile as Marlene Pardo Pelliser. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and also listen to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for Scary Storytelling, Nightshade Diary for Classic Horror and Adventure Stories, and of course, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests as we talk about the mysteries of the unexplained. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy theories, and just about anything that is plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Miami Historic and Haunted Via Paula House The Roaring Twenties were in full swing in Miami when the Cuban Consulate was established in Northwest State County. Cuban materials and labor were imported for its construction. Moorish arches and Spanish tiles exemplified a luxurious Cuban-style villa. It was completed in time to survive the hurricane of 1926 that ripped through Miami, and that same strange luck saved it from the wrecking ball as the years trudged by and the city grew around it. The house, located at 5811 North Miami Avenue, will look right at home in Havana, and it has been the subject of ghost stories for many years. The original owner was Cuba's Consul General in Miami, Don Domingo Melord, Havana architect C. Freira designed it with 18-foot-high ceilings, hand-painted floor tiles, and Tuscan columns. Materials and workmen were brought from Cuba to complete it. This was the perfect home, which sat in what was then a tropical agricultural area, and Don Domingo named it Villa Paula in honor of his wife. The Melord's occupancy of Villa Paula lasted only four years, Domingo Milord retired as counsel in July of 1930 due to health reasons. And two years later, Paula Milord's health deteriorated due to a leg amputation, and she died at Miami Jackson Hospital. She was 61 years old. Her services were held at Jesu Catholic Church, and contrary to popular belief, she was not buried in the garden of the home, but at Woodlawn Park Cemetery in Miami. By the time Paula died, Helen Reardon had bought it, and she lived there until her death in 1960. Over the next 14 years, it switched hands several times and was even a senior citizen home. In 1974, a man named Cliff Enzer bought Via Paula and started to refurbish it since it was in a state of disrepair after hippie squatters had vandalized it. The first thing he noticed was that he would hear some knocking on the front door, but no one was there every time he opened it. The door to his bedroom would suddenly slam shut. There were shadows on the walls, and he would hear the front door lock turning. Enzer said a visitor saw a one-legged woman with long, dark hair 
pinned up in a bun floating down the hallway, and he would randomly smell roses and Cuban coffee. He'd also hear piano music and the clack of high heel shoes on the back porch of the home. The phantom had a nasty disposition as his dishes and silverware were thrown to the floor and one day a poor chandelier inexplicably crashed to the floor. The most disturbing episodes involved Enzer's three cats who were each killed on different occasions when the back gate would slam shut despite there being no tension or wind and crush them. This might point to the spirit of Muriel Reardon who was said to have hated cats. By 1976, Ensor started to try to sell the property, while at the same time holding seances there. Several psychics visited the home, including Reverend Emma Tandridge, who would visit every two weeks, and who claimed that one of them wouldn't give a name, but that she believed it was Paula, since she loved to play the piano, and the smell of roses accompanied her. The second was a thin man with a top hat, a pudgy lady in a red dress, a distressed woman who lost a religious medal in the garden, and lastly, a young woman looking for the burial place of her illegitimate child. Newspapers covered the story, and the house's haunted reputation became established, even though stories circulated that even prior owner Muriel Reardon had certain rooms in the house she would avoid at all costs. By the 1980s, Via Paula was situated in what had become Little Haiti, and spooked local Haitians would bless themselves and cross the street to avoid walking in front of the house. Enser spent years trying to sell the place, and in 1985, placed it for auction, and a postal worker won it for $110,000. When he learned of the haunted reputation the house had, he promptly backed out of the deal despite plans to make the building into a restaurant. The house was finally sold in 1987, to Dr. Lucien Albert, who kept it until 2003, when it was sold to a real estate investor. When Dr. Albert was asked about the hauntings, he neither denied nor confirmed any of the stories attached to Via Paula. Fast approaching its 100 years of existence in 2018, it's been renovated, but as mysterious as ever, guarding all its secrets, including the identity of the ghosts that are said to haunt it. Presently, the house is a gallery, museum, and event venue. Prickly skin, a feeling that you're being watched or there's someone standing right behind when there isn't, and a drop in temperature are all the hallmarks that you are in the presence of the other side. In Miami, there are certain places where you're more likely to have these encounters. Horror movies set the expectation that paranormal experiences happen only in abandoned buildings, covered in ivy and flanked by naked trees in the dead of winter. But ghosts don't discriminate. They can also linger in the scorching heat and stifling humidity of Miami. Mysterious and ghastly deaths, suicides and murders, ever popular magic city history, are rife with phantasmagorical potentials. The next place we're visiting is called the Alfred I. DuPont Building. One of the first skyscrapers in Miami, the Alfred I. DuPont building, was constructed on the site of the demolished Hotel Hallison from 1937 to 1939. Because of its rich and long history, the DuPont building has plenty of stories to tell. 
1963, Grant Stockdale, a businessman and friend of President John F. Kennedy, died after falling from the 13th floor, 10 days after JFK's assassination. Whether he jumped or was pushed though remains a mystery. He landed on machinery on the fifth floor. A maintenance man and a cleaning lady have reported seeing a mysterious man and woman who vanish at a second glance. Some of the floors of the DuPont are no longer used, but there have been reports of running faucets and bathrooms. In addition, a technician in a group of workers repairing the air conditioning on the second floor said that when he opened a unit, he saw a badly burnt man's face that soon disappeared. The men were so spooked they wrote an incident report. Next, the Biltmore Hotel. In its heyday, the Biltmore played host to royalty both Europe's and Hollywood's. The hotel counted the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Ginger Rogers, Judy Garland, Bing Crosby, Al Capone, and assorted Roosevelt's and Vanderbilt's as frequent guests. Fashion shows, gala balls, aquatic shows by the Grand Pool, and weddings were de rigueur, as were world-class golf tournaments. A product of the Jazz Age, big bands entertained wealthy, well-traveled visitors to this American Riviera resort. In 1929, gangster Thomas Fatty Walsh was fatally shot at the Biltmore over a gambling dispute. Rumor is that his ghost haunts the hotel, especially the bar, where the glasses and bottles on the shelves have reportedly shaken mysteriously. Known as a man of indulgence who enjoyed Cuban cigars and women, Fatty is said to still wander the hotel and play tricks on staff and guests. His apparition has been seen on the 13th floor, where he was killed, and in bathroom mirrors throughout the hotel. The mysterious scent of cigar smoke, presumably a manifestation of Fatty, has been reported to follow attractive women around the Biltmore. Paranormal investigators say Fatty is a cooperative and friendly spirit, but he might not be the only soul wandering the hotel's halls. A decade after Walsh's murder in the 1930s, eyewitnesses reported that a woman walking in front of the Biltmore mysteriously disappeared. More recently, members of the kitchen staff claimed to have seen mysteriously swinging doors and heard inexplicable noises. The next time you visit the Biltmore, pick attention to any mysterious smells, sounds, or movements. You might have attracted the attention of a gangster ghost, but there could be other sources for the haunting said to occur at the Biltmore. With the onset of World War II, the Biltmore was converted to a hospital by the War Department. It served the wounded as the Army Air Force Regional Hospital. Many of the windows were sealed with concrete and the marble floors covered with government-issued linoleum. Also, the early site of the University of Miami School of Medicine, the Biltmore remained a VA hospital until 1968. In 1973, through the Historic Monuments Act and Legacy of Parks program, the city of Coral Gables was granted ownership control of the Biltmore. Undecided as to the structure's future, the Biltmore remained unoccupied for almost 10 years. Then in 1983, the city oversaw its full restoration to be opened as a grand hotel. Almost four years and $55 million later, the Biltmore opened on December 31, 1987 as a first-class hotel and resort. Over 600 guests turned out to honor the historic Biltmore at a black-tie affair. Since before its restoration in 1983, 
The Biltmore Hotel has been known for being haunted. Unexplained noises on the 13th floor, a ghostly girl out in the golf course, and restless spirits from its time as a VA hospital are but only a few of the ghostly stories associated with it. The following is a story submitted to Miami Ghost Chronicles back in 2012 of an experience that someone had while visiting the Biltmore. And this is the story. It was a warm August night back in 1999. My friend and I decided to go to see the Biltmore in Coral Gables, so we parked at a friend's house that lived a block away. Then we proceeded towards a huge landmark. We walked in like if we owned a place, right by the bellboy and the front desk, straight to the back of the hotel and then outside. They were five of us, including myself. Two of my friends stayed at the golf course just talking as I and my other two friends crept into the utility elevator in the back. We pressed the third floor, which then takes you to the main elevators. We got to the third floor, then found the other elevators. I was surprised to see the elevator to the far left leads to the tower. We got on that and pressed the infamous 13th floor. It didn't light up. We then took the elevator to the lobby, but before getting to the lobby, it stopped on the seventh floor. The doors opened, we stood still for a couple of seconds, and then the doors closed. Why it stopped at the seventh floor, who knows? We got to the lobby, but before we were able to walk out, a man with a suitcase walked in and asked, Going up? We said, Yeah, and he stayed inside. The man's destination was the 14th floor. He slid a special key into the elevator, which gives access to the tower floors. He asked what floor we were headed to. I kept a poker face and said, 13, please. He pressed it and it lit. We got to the 13th floor and the doors opened. We thanked the man and proceeded outside. The 13th floor is not like the other floors. It's more like a 10-foot enclosure with double doors facing you. We tried opening the doors, but they were locked. So we decided to call on the elevator. We stood waiting and it sounded like rain falling down the elevator shaft. We decided to go back down to the lobby but before we got to the lobby floor, the elevator automatically took us to the seventh floor again. We got spooked then and decided to get off on that floor and take the stairs to the bottom. We told our friends outside what had happened and they didn't believe us. So we all went back and took the elevator to the twelfth floor, got off and took the stairs to the tower. We passed the exit to the thirteenth floor. We got to the exit on the fourteenth and it was locked. We got to the fifteenth floor and opened a door. To your right, there is a door labeled Merrick Suite. We opened it and went inside. It was dark, but through the darkness, you could tell it was a detailed and beautiful room. We noticed that there were two windows opposite from each other. One was facing the front of the hotel and the other facing the rear towards the golf course. These windows were enormous, about 10 feet high. We also noticed that we were in a sitting room. There was more rooms inside the actual suite two on one side and one on the other side. We walked into the first dark room, turned on the light, and felt a temperature difference immediately. It was really cold in that room, despite the fact that all rooms were served by the same air conditioning system. One of my friends was going to open the closet, but I told him not to touch anything. We heard a noise coming from the elevator area. We all froze, looked at each other, and ran down the stairs to the lobby. My legs were in pain. Imagine running 15 flights down. 
Somewhere on our trek down the stairs, we left two of our guys behind. So we took the elevator back to the 12th floor and took the stairs to the 15th again. We were just nosy because we still hadn't found our other two friends that we had gone back for. We walked back into the room we were in and as I remembered, we had left the lights on. However, to our surprise, the lights were off. We paid it no attention and opened the door next to it. This room faced the corner of the hotel. It too was dark, but one could see the beds were unmade, which we thought was pretty weird. We walked into the last room across which had double doors. We were shocked to find the room lit. We closed the doors and exited the suite. We decided to go back down, but used the elevator this time. Again, as we waited, we heard sounds of hard rain, which definitely caught our attention. The door soon opened, and we all let out a shriek when we found our other two friends inside. We all ran into the elevator and pressed lobby, but it took us to the seventh floor again. What was it with the seventh floor? We also noticed that it was ice cold on that floor. We waited for the doors to close and went to the lobby. We walked back out into the golf course and looked up to the window at the Merrick suite. We saw what seemed to be the shape of a person looking straight down at us. We all stopped and stared. One of my friends gave a suggestion by saying it was probably a vase or something. But I knew that wasn't a vase. We walked the damp golf course grass just to walk off our scare. We walked to the end and turned around heading back to the hotel. I knew we were going back a different way. Something gave me the feeling to look back at the grass behind us. To my shock, there was more than a couple of footprints. Let's do the math now. Five guys equals ten sets of footprints, right? Well, someone please explain to me why there was at least twenty footprints going in all directions right behind us. We knew the prints weren't there before because in front of us the grass was perfectly smooth. So we all take one step at a time. When we took about two steps together, I turned around again, the zigzag steps, about 15 or more of them. We all ran out of the grounds and didn't stop until we got to my car, where we went home never doubting that the Biltmore is haunted. The Deering Estate The sprawling 444-acre Deering Estate is a hotbed of paranormal activity, experts say. There are paths here walked by Native Americans and Charles Deering, the estate's owner who died on site in 1925. During one visit, a psychic said she heard the voice of a woman begging for help to save the life of a drowning child. The estate preserves the 1920s-era home built for Deering, a Chicago industrialist and the first chairman of the International Harvester Company. Inside the basement, he had a walk-in bank-style vault hidden behind a bookcase door and of course he left it out of the house's blueprints. They once housed thousands of illegal wine bottles. Remember, these were the years of prohibition when Capone lived on a Miami Beach island. Humans inhabited this area for thousands of years, starting with Paleo-Indians. The Cutler fossil site contains fossilized human remains dating back 10,000 years, while the Cutler burial mound contains 12 to 18 Native American women and children buried face down in a spiral pattern. On the grounds is the Richmond Cottage, built in 1896 and which served as an inn. This structure is believed to also be haunted. 
It is said that there are 10 to 12 spirits in the building that regularly interact with visitors, all spirits of Native Americans watch from afar. Every Halloween season, they welcome would-be ghost hunters, so don't miss your chance. Miami City Cemetery Founded in 1897 as the oldest and only municipal cemetery in Miami-Dade County, it originally encompassed 10.5 acres of Pineland, situated seven blocks north of the new city, which took the moniker of the Magic City. Central Avenue ran east to west through the cemetery. Three quarters of the cemetery was platted for white burials and remaining one quarter on the western side was set aside for blacks due to segregation that existed at this time. During these years, plots sold anywhere from 10 to $15. During the 1950s, only burials from those who had already purchased a plot was allowed since it had reached capacity. In 1896, Edwin Nelson had founded the city's first funeral service. In 1906, Walter Combs purchased it and established Combs Funeral Home, situated three blocks south of the eastern entrance to the cemetery. In the early years, many parts of the cemetery were sectioned off according to religious beliefs and race. In the northern half, parishioners of the Jesu Catholic Church, known originally as the Church of the Holy Name, purchased plots. Members of Miami's first synagogue, Benai Zion, in 1915, bought lots at the rear of the graveyard and erected a wall around the plots. Another section was left for indigents and another for veterans that included burials from the Spanish-American War. A Confederate memorial circle contains the tombs of 20 Civil War veterans and others are buried through the graveyard. A two-story monument that originally stood in front of the old county courthouse was partially destroyed in the 1926 hurricane. What was left of it was brought to the cemetery to mark the area where the Confederate soldiers were buried. A young Englishman named Henry Branscombe was the cemetery's first burial. He was only in his mid-twenties when he died of tuberculosis. Since this first interment, there have been 9,000 others throughout the years. Many of Miami's first leaders and founders were buried here. Jack Tigertail, a Miccosukee chieftain who was shot to death in a dispute in 1922, is interred there as well. The body of Julia Tuttle, the mother of Miami, is buried at this cemetery. The bodies of the founder of the Burdines department store chain and Miami's first and third mayors also rest here. Though any graveyard can be creepy, Miami City Cemetery has one especially strange grave, that of Carrie Barrett Miller. After her death, Miller's husband placed her body in the grave and poured concrete over her. The tombstone reads, The body of Carrie Barrett Miller was molded in the solid block of concrete. December 4, 1926, after the body has gone to dust, her sleeping form will remain. The ghosts of Julia Tuttle and Isabella Peacock are said to haunt the area. Other more recent and disturbing finds were a carved-out heart of an animal, which was found at the base of a tree as a Santeria sacrifice. There have also been reports of vandalism and grave robbery, specifically taking bones from coffins in connection with Palomayombe, an Afro-Caribbean religion. Pinewood Cemetery 
This is a brief historical background on what was originally a simple one-acre rural cemetery established in the late 1800s, where pioneers had settled in the Miami area and interred their dead. In 1906, three acres were added, and these four acres are still nestled quietly, surrounded by a very low rock wall fence in the middle of an older but upscale section of Coral Gables. Passing in a vehicle, you might take it for a small shady park where the local residents sit on a bench and envision what old Florida was like. That is, until you spy tombstones that lie scattered in between the paths that run through the grounds. Originally named Larkin Cemetery, it was changed to Cocoa Plum, Piney Woods, and then to its present name. Records indicate that there are approximately 200 recorded burials, possibly as early as the 1850s, and the latest was in the 1970s, officially though from the 1890s to the 1940s. Researchers believe that there is more than what was officially recorded, as human bones have been dug up in the periphery area of the cemetery during construction of modern homes. It's not confirmed if these were unaccounted graves from the cemetery or burials from an earlier time when the hot climate a lack of undertakers and no cemeteries forced families to bury their dead in unhallowed ground. Historical artifacts such as a letter dating from 1908 to the county commissioners describe where Plot 58 was used to bury paupers. After the 1926 hurricane, efforts were made to clean the cemetery, but these efforts became less and less as the years went by and the families of the deceased or others who owned plots moved away. In 1983, citizens and the city of Coral Gables initiated a restoration project, and some new headstones have been erected. However, most graves are shallow indentations in the ground, that is, if they're not covered by vegetation. Over the years, reports of paranormal occurrences ranged from midnight burials, which was probably someone picking up graveyard dirt for rituals, to drug parties, to animal sacrifices. Many of the reconstructed headstones give a glimpse of the hardships faced by these early Miami settlers as they retell the death of infants and young children. Others are downright mysterious as well as tragic, such as the one for Dora Perry Suggs. On her tombstone is written, 1872, December 18, 1905 died tragically at the Devil's Den wife of Gideon David Suggs. The story of her death is so much more than those few words on her headstone. In 1905, this 33-year-old mother of two left her farm in a mule-drawn wagon to purchase supplies. Several hours later, the wagon returned without her, and a search party retraced her steps into the night, trying to find her. They approached a narrow and overgrown stretch of road known as Devil's Den which is the present intersection of Granada and Blue Road. This is where they found her. She was raped and then murdered with a heavy rock which was used to crack her skull. The area was avoided by the local residents until 1916 when the area was cleared. Her husband, Gideon, died in 1957. In March of 1906, a few months after the murder, a man by the name of Ed Brown also known as Katie Brown, was arrested and indicted for the murder. He was found guilty. However, he did confess to the crime when he stood on the gallows 
on June 5, 1906. At the time of Dora's murder, only six months before, in June of 1905, Charles E. Davis and his daughter Elsie were brutally murdered. Unlike the crime committed against Dora to this day, that crime has never been solved. Other tragic deaths briefly related under headstone is that of 17-year-old Lillian Grant Freeman, wife and mother of two-year-old Winnie, who died after sustaining burns while making supper, and 18-year-old Delia Blith Branham, who was buried with her infant on August 26, 1908, after both died in childbirth. Yes, those were hard years to live here in Miami. When I visited the cemetery, it was in the middle of the afternoon, since it's only open until sunset, and the weather was anything but what would be described as typical cemetery weather. There were blue skies, puffy white clouds, and a nice breeze blowing as I walked slowly through the cemetery, snapping pictures of the headstones. Since it was a weekday, it was not unusual to find that initially I was the only one in the cemetery. Reading the epitaphs, you feel the sense of history that is usually gone when you live in a city as large as Miami and which has changed so much over time. There was no prickly feeling of dread, no sense of being watched, none of the sensory warnings that you experience when you are in the presence of a ghost or otherworldly being. About 20 minutes into my walk, I saw a gentleman walking quickly behind me. A chocolate-colored Labrador trotted ahead of him as he spoke on his cell phone. As he passed by me, he waved hello. I said hi, and off he went on his quick-paced stroll. Isa stared up the path where he was leaving, which I had been watching only a few seconds before. I saw what appeared to be the figure of a young man dressed in jeans and a white striped polo shirt who was standing behind one of the trees. Within seconds, I was trying to figure out how I had not seen him before, either standing there or approaching the area where the tree was. The cemetery is not really that large. I had a very good view of the path leading up to the tree where he jumped behind. And just as I had seen the man walking his dog long before he came up to where I was at, there had been no sign of him before then. I could not see his face, only part of his torso, his arm, and a leg as he darted behind the trunk of a thick tree. I looked behind me. I saw no other persons. And when I looked again, there was no one standing behind the tree. Even if he asked Scotty to beam him up, could this person have disappeared in the three seconds it took for me to bring my gaze back to the area in front of me? I hurried up and walked to the tree. No one there. No one close by. No talking. No noise. Nothing. Zilch. Even now, after so many years working as a paranormal investigator, I still get these great surprises. I didn't take a picture because, of course, I was reading epitaphs about people who died about 80 years ago. And what I now realize was a full-body solid apparition dressed in modern clothes was the last thing I expected to see in broad daylight. I took him for a local resident visiting the cemetery or another sightseer. Even my videographer, Henry, who had stayed sitting at a bench at the entrance to the cemetery, wasn't around to corroborate my story. I did ask him if he had seen anyone that fit that description, and he said no. However, he did recall seeing the man walking his dog. I stood by my car, which was parked in the street outside, and where I could see anyone exiting the cemetery, 
and I waited for about 30 minutes just to see if that young man made an appearance and put to rest that niggling feeling that the supernatural had the last laugh on me that day. And of course, no one appeared. So these are a few stories of Miami's haunted spots.